Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania Trump were in Atlanta Wednesday to attend the Prescription Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit. Here's a clip from the president. Everyone here today is united by the same vital goal to liberate our fellow Americans from the grip of drug addiction and to end the opioid crisis once and for all. The CDC says there have been more than 200,000 opioid-related deaths in the U.S. over the last two decades. Georgia has some of the nation's hardest-hit counties. White users have largely been the face of the epidemic, but the problem affects every demographic. We're learning more about that from Don Tyus of Morehouse's Southeast Addiction Technology Transfer Center. She's director of its division that works on treatment and prevention. Don, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. Also with us on the line from Little Rock, Arkansas, Sam Snodgrass. He's a recovering opioid user who now counsels and helps others. He has a Ph.D. in biopsychology from UGA. Sam, thank you for being with us. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Don, I'm going to start with you. We know opioids are highly addictive, and there are many paths to addiction. Frequently, they have been prescribed as pain relievers that quickly turns into dependency. And that crisis has largely been associated with white people in rural areas and the suburbs. What do we know about opioid use among these populations? You're absolutely correct, Miss Virginia. Um, the white Caucasians and suburban and a lot of rural communities have been the face of this epidemic. And largely in speaking with a lot of my colleagues, it's because, you know, at some point doctors were treating the pain and not necessarily worrying about the dependency. Mm-hmm. They were also um, in a lot of these populations, specifically in the suburban populations, had a little bit more access, uh, sometimes largely due to they have insurance and they're able to frequent the doctors. And the doctors are more likely because of that status quo and oftentimes the the look um, to prescribe um, in an abundance to these particular um, cultures and to these particular groups. Um, I think um, also with it being the face of this epidemic is because we don't what a lot of times uh, drugs have cultures have specific drugs that are associated with them from a stigma perspective. Um, when you're thinking about um, African Americans, sometimes they're tied to the cocaine, crack cocaine. They're tied to heroin, but not necessarily the opioid prescription. One thing I would like to say is that I, I agree completely with what Don was saying. Just the way this has played out. Uh, I mean, the, the pain pill epidemic hit the rural parts of this country hit the suburbs, and the inner cities were primarily spared from the pain pills for various reasons. And uh, this, this pain pill epidemic just swept through the rural suburban parts of this country. So, Don, your center is based at Morehouse School of Medicine and has a grant to cover eight states. Now, you're working with white users in rural areas in the suburbs. Those, uh, as we've said, are the face, but also with urban minority populations. Mm-hmm. What kind of numbers are in that demographic? Well, in the demographic with the um, with the African-Americans, we found that between, we know, according to the CDC, but between 2016 and 2017, there was a 26% surge in African-American usage and deaths. And 
so with that population, we found because they don't have a lot of access, especially in rural America, rural um, communities, they don't have access to treatment. Um, I'm a big fan of making sure education and resources are there, but unfortunately, they just don't have it. But one, what we found that one of the main causes in the deaths of African Americans is because fentanyl has become a part of without them knowing a part in getting in cocaine, in heroin, and that's caused a great surge in deaths among African-Americans. Yeah, Sam, I'm wondering if you can pick up on that as somebody who is in the treatment field. It's not just doctors prescribing drugs. It's often people who are addicts, no. and now they have access to fairly cheap street drugs. Mm-hmm. Okay, this, this, is, this is what happened. We had this pain pill explosion, and then uh, Oxycontin was one of the main drugs that was, that was used. Mm-hmm. But in 2010, uh, Purdue Pharma changed OxyContin to an abuse deterrent formulation, uh, OPs. Uh, the data show that about 80% of the people that were using OxyContin when it was changed to OPs switched to other drugs, primarily heroin. Again, this is primarily the white population at this point. And what, what happened then was the main drug that they switched to was heroin. And you can see this in the overdose death data. The overdose deaths from, from heroin started shooting up in 2010. They, they slammed down the made the OPs abuse deterrent. They slammed down on the prescribing of other pain pills. Pain pill mills got shut down. And, I mean, what were people supposed to do? Oh, well, I can't get my pain pills, so I guess I'll stop. If we could stop, we wouldn't have been using pain pills. Mm-hmm. So heroin was there. It, was, it had been there, but it hadn't been that much of a problem. If you can get you an Oxy-80, you're not going to go buy heroin. But when they slammed down on pain pills, then people started using heroin. Now, in 2013, between 2013 and 2014, Fentanyl started being mixed into the heroin supply. So this fentanyl, is just to basically stretch it further. Is that the is that why? Fent, the fentanyl is a lot cheaper to make, and it's far more potent than heroin. Uh, fentanyl is thirty fifty times as potent as pure heroin, which means that one is cheaper and get more bang for your buck. If you're somebody that's trying to import heroin or, or something across the border. If fentanyl is 30 times as potent, say, as pure heroin, you've got the choice of trying to import 30 kilograms of heroin or one kilogram of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do? So it's really the economics of the black market. It, it, it's called the iron law prohibition. The stronger the law enforcement, the more potent the drugs. It, there's an economic incentive in a black market to use the most potent form because it's smaller and you get more bang for your buck. And so fentanyl started getting into the white heroin supply. The problem is the white heroin supply became the black heroin supply. And people who had been using in, in inner cities who had been using heroin for years, maybe decades, all of a sudden started dying because the heroin they were using wasn't heroin. It was heroin mixed with this fentanyl. And the problem is that people don't know the dose of fentanyl that they're using. If you know the dose, you can use it relatively safely. But if you're buying it on the street, you have no idea how much fentanyl is mixed into that. And that is largely responsible for the deaths. Am I correct in that, that it is fentanyl that so many people Oh, it is definitely fentanyl. Uh, We were talking about the the CDC data. Deaths involving fentanyl, the largest relative increase, I'm looking at data now, the largest relative increase occurred among blacks, 60.7% between 2016 and 2017. Sam, I got to stop you there because it seems to me that we have not heard about this. I mean, is that your perception as well, that we have heard so much about, you know, the opioid addiction in rural America among white people? 
And when did you say this increase started with It started in 2014. Yes. And then in Georgia alone, there was 11.9% increase, according to the CDC data, among African-Americans. And he's correct. That did start in 2014 to 2016. And now it's even, um, the numbers are even rising for African-Americans. What are some of those things that we think that we really can do to make sure that opioids, for me, although the white communities uh, is pretty much what's the face of it, I think one of the one of the takeaways from that also is that it is an epidemic amongst the country, but it has allowed us to be able to receive more funding for that, to look at it as what can we do for the American people? What can we do for people in general? And, you know, we're being able to provide more resources. We're being able to really develop more programs and, you know, due to the funding of this epidemic. And I want to make sure that we understand that African-Americans are in need of services as well. And we have to really look at these rural populations and access to treatment. We really have to look at what are some of the services that are needed in these areas. Well, I'm talking about the demographics of opioid use with Sam Snodgrass and Don Tyus. Both of them work to help others overcome addiction and also look at prevention and recovery. But quickly, before we get into recovery, how about, we've been talking about black and white populations, Hispanics also represent a decent-sized chunk of the growing population using opioid-related drugs. What are the numbers there? Okay, the Hispanic population, there's been an increase, but it hasn't been as dramatic as in the white or the black population yet. It's not saying that it won't get there, it just hasn't happened yet. So, all right, clearly there's a market for these drugs everywhere, across race, across income, across geography. Now there are moves to pull back on promiscuous prescription writing and to curb supply. Several states suing drug companies, and the president is attending this opioid summit. What is happening to supply and demand now, Sam? Well, if you look at the the most recent overdose data, the, the CDC usually takes them a year to get the overdose data out. So like for the overdose data for 2017 didn't come out for until December 2018. What we've seen now is that the overdose data for pain pills, and this should be no surprise, is decreasing. Death rate for heroin is decreasing slightly, but what's going off the charts is, is the fentanyl-related overdose deaths. If you don't offer them more services, if you don't increase access to treatment and effective treatment, if you don't give them harm reduction programs which can connect them to treatment and keep them safe and alive, people are going to die. There's a lot more money available for that kind of thing because, you know, we know that wealthy opioid users may have insurance or other resources to afford expensive treatments or rehabs. How about lower income populations, especially minority populations? How are they getting help done? Uh, for us, because we are training in technical assistance program, it's, it's our job to work with the providers to make sure that they are, as Stam stated, providing, having the, the knowledge base and being able to have to provide effective treatment. Um, I know that one of the things that we do uh, largely, we have a major project at, at Morehouse School of Medicine, is we're working with the faith communities. I mean, it's important that for African Americans, they are connected to their faith communities. And I think that we need to equip these faith communities and these these um, churches with the knowledge base, putting peer support into churches, provide, having programs into churches, helping churches develop programs for lower economic um, African Americans, because they don't have the financial base, and a lot of them don't have um, the insurance. I think that if we um, provide opportunities through insurance for some indigenous services, that that would also be a, a good way to help African-Americans in lower population. Well, what are you thinking, Sam? Uh, obviously, you are a biopsychologist. You are science-based. 
connection, we are told, is the opposite of addiction. Yeah, so I've heard that. So how do you approach that? <laughs> you sounded a little dubious there. Yeah, I am just a bit. So go well, ahead. Why is that? What is, what is you, how would you look at treatment and or prevention? Okay. The most effective treatment for opioid addiction are the medications buprenorphine and methadone. This has been shown repeatedly, demonstrated after study after study, decade after decade, that if you want to help somebody, get them into treatment with these medications. It's all well and good to give people connection, and that is, I'm not trying to downplay that. That is very important. If you can make a connection with somebody, then you can build trust with them, and you can help them move towards any positive change in their drug use in their life, and this is what we're trying to do, and that is very important with connection. But what we're also trying to do, if they're ready and if they want, is to give them a means to stabilize their addiction, to control the symptoms of it, and to be able to lead a more normal life. And this is what these medications have been shown, proven to do. So we really need to uh, increase the access to these medications in the rural parts of this country and in the inner cities. Just an example, less than 5% of the doctors in this country have an X-wayer to prescribe buprenorphine. Mm -hmm. There's over 60% of the rural counties in this country that have not one buprenorphine provider. There are people dying out there. We have a medication that's been proven to save them, and we don't give them access to this medication to stop this overdose epidemic. Well, it seems to me that the federal government is actually much more focused on and funding drug drug replacement treatment therapy than other kinds of therapy. There are things that need to also be done. This X waiver keeps physicians, like I said, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at something. Unless people can have access to it, then they can't use it. So, yes, it's good that the government is starting to see this and starting to provide more money for it. But we need to get rid of this X waiver. We need to get rid of this training. Do you realize that a doctor that goes through this this training they have to get finally gets an X waiver from the DEA, they can only see 30 patients in the first year. I'm going to just turn to Dawn, who has been studying her Morehouse group, looking at best practices for treatment, mm-hmm. also a cer- certified counselor. So what do you think? Treatment and prevention, what are some of the things that work? Well, for us, I know that we found that, I know Sam said that, to get away a lot of times from this training, but it is our job to make sure that we provide effective, efficient, evidence-based practices uh, materials and knowledges and resources to these providers. Um, I'm, I'm, I totally agree with Sam that there um, need to be uh, medicated-assisted treatment. We know about buprenorphine, and we also have to continue to to making sure that we're providing um, current information to doctors and providers. I also totally agree that we need to make sure that we have recovery ordinances of care. That meaning that we need to have continuous prescriber education because it, it, I do agree that if you throw money at something that doesn't change the problem, but it does really help us to develop um, products to develop trainings, to making sure that we have best practices that are out there, that they are also able to access these. And then just looking at meeting people where they are. You know, as a clinician, I think that is very important. If I'm in a community, it's our job to work with providers to find the best practical and way to meet people where they are to get them that, the treatment that they need. Man, we know that now that means, you know, people are showing up in prison, yes. drying out, detoxing, detoxing. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are so many different fronts to this. And I want to thank both of you for having for spending some time with us today.
Thank okay. you for having me. Thank you. Don Tyus, she's with Morehouse School of Medicine's Southeast Addiction Technology Transfer Center, director of its division that works on treatment and prevention. Sam Snodgrass, former opioid user who now counsels others. He's also on the board of a support group called Broken No More. Thank you again both so much. Thank you. Thank you. We invite your comments, questions, and civil complaints at our Facebook group, GPB Radio On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. I'm Virginia Prescott on Facebook at Virginia Prescott GPB, which could frankly really use some love. We're going to continue our look about the opioid epidemic after the break. Journalist Beth Macy is going to talk about how much drug companies knew about people dying from their products and their addictive power. We're also going to hear stories of users in Appalachia. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.